Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome back to the second edition of Proportunity Knox. I'm your host, Jordan Chernotsky. Lovely to be back today. We've got a very, very exciting speaker with us again today. Um, we've got Natasha Champion, the regional sales manager for Uber Home Loans, who will be giving us a little bit of insight into, you know, the processes and, you know, just general aspects that are involved with getting finance for a property, you know, just talk about the interest rates, talk about credit, talk about qualifying buyers, qualifying yourself, all sorts of exciting topics. But Natasha, thank you for being on with us and we'll get things rolling straight after this. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. Welcome back. Um, Natasha Champion in a studio with us today. Natasha, the regional sales manager from Uber Home Loans. Hi there, Natasha. How are you? Morning, George. Thank you for having me. Morning, listeners. All good, thanks. Very, very, very happy to have you on the show. You know, it's only the second week, so, you know, we're still building a bit of a name for ourselves. But from what I've heard, the whispers are, well, the whispers are whispering. So thank you again, Natasha. And I'm sure that, you know, you're going to provide us with uh, an amazing insight and some very important information for you know, pretty much anyone who is either in the property market or looking to get into the property market. So, Absolutely. yeah. So, We're I mean, passionate about higher education. I exactly. appreciate the opportunity, George. No, and it's a pleasure, like I say, to have you because generally speaking, in my experience, you're one of the best that I've worked with. So I'm sure our listeners will be thrilled to hear what you have to say. So without further ado, I suppose, you know, there's more questions to be asked here. Well, then we have time to 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 ask them. Um, I mean, we could sit here all day, as you know, but let's start things off slowly, but surely. Tell us a little bit, Natasha, about the prime lending rate at the moment and how it's changed recently or how it's affected the market over the last few months. Yeah, so I think, you know, if we if we look at the if we look at the the rate cycle uh, in a graph over the last kind of 24 months, we're going to see quite a deep V. Mm-hmm. So we, we came from a base at the end of 2019 when we, when none of us knew what COVID-19 was. And, um, and we were sitting at 10% at that level. Yeah. Then we went all the way down to 7% at its lowest. And now we, we coming, you know, back up to pre-COVID levels. So it feels extreme. It feels fast. But really what it is is an evening out of the interest rates and, and having to mitigate inflation re- remains the, the MPC, the Monetary Policy Committee's, um, you know, main job. So, so we're flattening out. We foresee probably another, another 50 bips, which is half a percent, 50 basis points happening, um, at the November policy meeting and then potentially another smaller one kind of Jan, Feb, first quarter. Okay. But we, we foresee it flattening out at about 10.25, uh, Jordan, which, sure. um, which will allow it to, to then normalize, stabilize and allow people to, to go back to the drawing board, run their numbers and budget again yes. without fear of volatility. Yes. Look, I mean, as a, from a general perspective, when someone sees that an interest rate is higher, you know, the automatic thought is, this is going to cost me more. This is a problem. This is a bad thing. But, you know, I'm sure you'll be the first to tell all of our listeners that 
the rising interest rates are purely a you know economic tactic that are that's used to bring down the prices in the in the market at the moment you know uh it's not really an amazing market to be selling in but um i think that an increase in the interest rates should bring those prices into a more stable bracket is that is that the correct frame of mind correct so so i think what what people are finding now is you know instead of Instead of uh, more of a bidding war um, mm-hmm. happening from a buyer's perspective, the buyers are now spoiled for choice. Yes. So the tables have flipped a bit, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Oversupply. Yeah. Well, well, that's it. You know, buyers are spoiled for choice. They're a little bit more discerning. I think two major trends we see emerge in, in kind of an uptick on an interest rate cycle mm-hmm. is um, a lot of cash buyers, you know, c- yeah. come out, people sitting on lump sums of money, yeah. and a lot of people increase their deposits. So we've seen an increase in deposits, which means that their loan amount is lower, mm-hmm. um, their terms are better because it's more, it's more, uh, risk averse in yeah. terms of a transaction at the banks, but but we are seeing a, a, a very small contraction in our intake volumes. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything else is on the app, Jordan. Bond Amazing. approvals are on the app. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, I remember the last we, we ratios are down. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that the banks are still very competitive despite the you know the economic overlook of the country at the moment. But mm. I suppose you know the question still remains. Is now a good time to invest in property in this country? I mean, rates aside. Mm. You know, it's interesting because I think, you know, property is a long-term investment. You know, the line is safe as houses. Mm-hmm. I think property is, is a dream for many South Africans. Property ownership is like a, leg- a legacy dream, yeah, you know. Yeah. A lot of people in this country have come from a place where it's never even been on the radar. Mm-hmm. And I think with buyer education out there and people having more financial education at their fingertips, it Uber will empower people to own their own homes. Yeah. So I think it's so important for people to understand exactly what the market means, do a bit of research. And, um, and I think it's important to note – for those who are looking for for finance, for those who don't who aren't sitting on those lump sums of cash like you and I, uh, and need to go to the bank for that mm-hmm. money, you know the the rate concession, the average rate concession, which is what the banks give below prime, has doubled year on year. Wow! So you know, 2022 average rate concession was prime less 0.14. It's now prime less 0.3. The banks wow. have actually come on board with bond inclusive products, cost inclusive products, which um, which is often a barrier to entry in the in the first time buyer space. You know yeah. that initial transfer yeah. duty lump sum. No, of course. Of so course. we take our lead from the banks because they've got very high level economists, you know, sitting um, on their payroll. Yeah. And when they do their forecasting, I don't think that they'd be as cavalier as to bring in a cost inclusive product if they were foreseeing any manner of market crash. Yeah. No, I can I can understand that even with my basic level of knowledge on the matter. But okay, so you say that approval rates are up, correct? Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. it's just it's difficult to wrap my head around because of the fact that obviously interest rates are are going up, and you know the the country's in a pretty difficult state economically, just overall. You know, some worse than others. But how how are people managing to still get bonds if 
things are so tough, you know, at the moment. What what is required for a person to get a bond? Let's just say we'll throw a simple number. Let's just say you need a million rand bond. What do you need in order to qualify for that bond? You know, so pre-NCA, it was quite a, an easy formula to calculate. It would be 30% of your gross. Mm-hmm. So in order to qualify for a million, um, very approximately yes. uh, speaking, you'd need to gross 30,000. 10% of your, uh, 30% of your gross income would be allocated to a repayment. So 10 grand, 1 million rand bond, done and dusted. But post NCA, and I think, you know, post the financial crash in 2008, the banks realized in terms of trying to mitigate a reckless lend, in addition to what you're grossing, Jordan, what Mm -hmm. are you netting and what are you spending? So the net surplus calculation then came into play. So of that same 30,000 gross, say we're netting 25, uh, but we're spending 23. All of a sudden, that 10,000 at a at a gross level, at a 30% of gross, mm-hmm. becomes more like 2,000 because that's what you've got left at the end of the month. Yeah. Obviously, the banks are going to remove things like properties that the clients are selling or rental income that will fall away. But net surplus is actually a truer reflection of your affordability. And the banks are going to use the gross income calculation hasn't gone away, but they are going to make use of Whichever of the two figures are lower, what you've got left over versus 30% of your gross. So it's a double-edged sword when banks calculate affordability. And I think it mitigates reckless lending. And I think that's why the South African banks didn't crumble the way the way the U.S. banks did at the time, because we we kind of are are relatively relatively conservative, conservative and responsible. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. Very, very, very Mm. interesting. Something I hadn't even considered. <laughs> so, in terms of the, the the rollout, from the point where you say, "All right, I need a bond," to the point where mm. you either get or, you know, God forbid, don't get the bond. In mm. a nutshell, what would you suggest to our listeners in terms of how they can go about it to increase their chances to, you know, just to cover all their bases, just to make sure that they've done all the due diligence. Absolutely. So I think understanding two main things, we've discussed the basic affordability calculations, but people have to understand their credit score, their credit health, and and, and what exactly is going on. You know, by any huge judgments and defaults and, you know, legal matters, someone would have sent you a letter down the line. But people forget that banks have got eyes on 24 months worth of payment profile behavior. So literally everything from your YDE account to your Vodacom account is listed on your credit report. And if you've missed kind of a repayment, you're going to get a little 30 days. If you've missed two, you're going to get a 60 days. Mm -hmm. So for your credit score to be affected, it doesn't necessarily have to be a judgment, a default, a legal matter. Yeah, it's any account. Exactly that. That is the bank's frame of reference. Wow. Um, so they can see and understand your financial behavior. Okay. Having said that, I know, you know, Edgar's, for example, TV licenses, the, the Lancet guys, a lot of people are quick to, to, to place people on the credit bureau to report them. Yeah. So that may very well be a small matter. You've changed addresses and you haven't realized that you owe the lab. 60 bucks. Yeah. Um, and these are issues that can, that can creep up. So the first port of call would be to understand your credit profile. Mm-hmm. So, so we've got an electronic tool called the Uber Bond Indicator. You can just click on the link and get a real time credit score. It's what's called 
a soft check, so it's not going to okay. reflect on your bureau as a formal credit review. Okay, okay. If you see that little dial, that little color, it's going to be like a traffic light. If it's yellow or red, then mm-hmm. I'd suggest you do log on to, to one of the bureaus or onto Uber Home Loans and yes. get a, a, and get a comprehensive report and understand exactly what's going on. From okay. there, affordability. You know, be honest about your – I always think – even myself in the industry that I earn 50 and spend 20, but it's probably the other way around. When you start looking, have, having a long, hard look at your expenses. Yeah. So understand your expenses, incomings, outgoings. The qualified buyer certificate puts those two things together, yes. your bureau score and your affordability. Verifying your declarations with supporting documents. Once you've got that in hand, that's your passport to purchase Jordan. And one of two things can happen. You might have overshot what you thought you could buy for, uh, which means we're going to avoid heartache and we're yeah. going to shop it up price yeah. range. Or you're going to be pleasantly surprised and realize that you can, in fact, push yourself and maybe get more house for your affordability. No, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, speaking from my experience, pre-qualification is such an important tool for a purchaser or even someone looking for a rental, obviously in a much, you know, smaller capacity. It's, it's just such a beneficial tool. And I know that you, as much as I would recommend that any person looking at finance, you know, I, I, I suppose every one of us should do it, even if we're not looking for finance at this stage. But, um, it's all, it's all very interesting. So then I suppose the next question would be, and I suppose many of us, unfortunately, sometimes through, you know, unforeseen circumstances, find ourselves in a bit of a credit pickle. What, what do you do when you find yourself on the bureau or a notice has been rung up on your name or whatever the case may be? Surely let's just say it's nothing major, but it is something that you haven't sorted out. What, what do you, what's your course of action thereafter if you need to go and clear two accounts and do that and do this and do that? Is there an evidential-based program whereby you can provide evidence to the source of finance or the person who rejected you or the credit bureau to clear yourself? So absolutely. You know, we're in the business of getting home loans approved. So, you know, it's not it's not an issue that we'd walk away from and say thanks for coming. Mm-hmm. But we, we would impart the information that, that you aren't, in fact, buyer-ready. And based on what we're seeing from your full credit bureau, we need to either make sure – for the next three months that we are paying our minimum repayments on the day it's due in full mm-hmm. and just having, just reigniting that consistency in your repayments, putting, setting up a debit order, setting a reminder, because I mean, literally if we're two days late, that's going to flag as a whole month. That's yeah. just how the bureau works. So we could reinstitute a little bit of financial discipline, get organized. If it's a judgment or a default, we need to understand a, if it's been taken in error, there are certain mobile network providers who, who, you know, I won't say the name, who, who, who make mistakes and actually chuck you on there by mistake. Yeah. Um, then it's a conversation we have to have with a, with a service provider. If it's a judgment, unfortunately that is legal. We have to employ an attorney and we have to go to court to have that removed. Wow. That's a longer process. Yeah. But d- once we understand if slash what the problem is, we can take steps. So if you're not buyer ready, we've actually at Uber Home Loans got a um a JV with Sunlum who actually 
will will rehabilitate that client and then send that client back to us when they are bio-ready. Okay, so, so either your Uber consultant can assist you or if it's a slightly longer rehab process, we outsource that to Sunlam and then we will get you back when you are bio-ready. But okay. what you've done is taken steps to remedy the situation. Yes. So there is a remedy process whereby it's it's all okay. Obviously, you're never going to be able to clear your credit history per se, but to know to remove yourself from a standing point whereby you're not in good credit and to rehabilitate yourself, as you say, and put yourself into much better standings. You know, it's almost like your past doesn't have to affect your future if you deal with it properly. You know, hundred percent, George. It's not to say if you're not buy ready now, you can never buy a home. That's not the way it works. But the sooner we understand if there are issues, the sooner we can sort them out, and the sooner we can become buyer-ready. Okay. Well, that is very, very, very interesting, and I'm sure all of you with us have taken in a lot of information, and there's still more to come. Uh, Natasha, so far so good, and I hope you're still enjoying yourself. And we'll be back right after this. (laughs) 101.9 High FM, One Nation one station. Welcome back to Proportunity Knox. I'm your host, Jordan, with me in studio, Natasha Champion. Natasha, let's pick up where we left off, but moving into a new topic. Okay, so we've just gone through, you know, the basic premise of, well, not premise, but more so the scope of home loans in the country, the interest rate, how things work, etc., etc. But now I think it's time for the nitty gritty questions. So, Natasha, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Bring it. So, let me ask you this. Aside from the obvious costs attached to paying for a bond, your monthly prepayments, et cetera, et cetera, what are the hidden costs attached to purchasing a house with finance? So, I think when, especially if you're emerging from the rental market or, or maybe still staying with your folks, you need to be cognizant of the reality of home maintenance. You know, nothing worthwhile having doesn't require looking after. Yeah. So, you'd have to factor in the things like rates, uh, rates and taxes, understand what you're in for there, understand, yeah. um, you know, the average electricity consumption, water consumption. If it's sectional titles, George, you've got the um, body corporate fees. You know, you've got your monthly levies. Yes. There's also insurance, which a lot of people don't take into account. So if it's sectional, that homeowner's cover is going to be part of your levy. But if it's a freehold, uh, full title property, the homeowner's cover is going to be mandatory. Obviously, if you've bought cash, it's not going to be a condition. But if you've um, if you've taken out a home loan, remember that asset remains the bank's until such time as it's paid off. Yes. So heaven forbid something happens structurally, they will require you to be covered for that, and that uh, that is a significant monthly expense. Yes. So in terms of monthly outgoings, in addition to your bond repayment, and aside from the lump sum you've paid on transfer. You have to factor in those monthly um, yes. uh, outlays when when you when you look at your affordability. Okay, I need to stop you there and just go back. When you speak about this lump sum paid on transfer, can you can you just sort of open that up a little bit? Just give a little bit more insight into what you mean by that. Absolutely. So you know the 
the cost, the upfront cost, in terms of raising a bond, there's a bond raising fee. It's pretty much the same across the board. It's about six, six thousand, seven thousand rand. That can be capitalized into the loan. So that's not something that you necessarily have to lay out. The biggest ticket item in the transaction fee is going to be the transfer duty. And that's the tax levy bustles. Mm-hmm. On a property transaction. So, you know, 900 can be low. You'll, you'll dodge that, that lump sum. But as you go up the tiers and it is on a sliding scale, the more expensive the property, the bigger that becomes. And just for ease of reference, download the Uber app. It's free. And then you can run all manner of numbers and all sorts of scenarios and see what that is. In addition to the, the transfer duty, you're looking at transfer fees. So the, you know, I don't, I want to, I want to keep it simple for the listeners, but I think it's also something that's interesting to note. There are usually three attorneys linked to a property transaction. Stop me if I'm boring you, Jordan. You'll never bore bond me. Bond cancellation attorney is going to represent the seller to make sure that the seller's bond gets cancelled if he has one. The transferring attorney is also generally nominated by the seller. And he, he acts on behalf of the seller, but funny enough is paid for by the buyer. You then, if that purchaser is taking out a bond, the bank will nominate what's called a registration attorney. Yes. So both the transfer and the reg attorneys will charge fees for their legal services. Okay. So what, so what would be a standard, what would be like a, a baseline in terms of that? I know everyone's yeah. probably different, but. For sure. So it's also a sliding scale. Okay. But you're talking, you're talking probably, you know, from 10 grand to, to both of them up. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in for, for a good, for a good couple of, of yes. thousand in and, addition to and, that duty. Okay. And this obviously then falls onto the purchaser, those, those costs. Correct. And okay. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, I suppose there's a hell of a lot to consider right now. Well, not right now, but. At any point in time that you, you'd be looking to get into the property market. But, um, with, uh, with all of that in mind, I suppose, you know, as we've said before, pre-qualification is key. R- mapping out your numbers, knowing exactly what to expect without any surprises, which as much as we try to avoid them tend to still come up. But I suppose building on this as further education for, for all, as you mentioned, you, you do enjoy doing. What is involved if I am now selling my house, but I still have a bond on it and it isn't paid off yet? What is the process then? So I think what a lot of, what a lot of sellers forget is that you do need to give 90 days written notice. When, whenever you, whenever you want to cancel the bond. So that usually ties in quite nicely with those first mandate, uh, conversations mm-hmm. with prospective agents or, or if you're selling independently and you know that you're ready to put that house on the market, I would say one of the first things you need to do is give written notice to your bondholder. Okay. So, you know, regardless of the outstanding balance, regardless of how long you've had that property, you don't want or, or had that home loan, you don't want to be in a position where you expose yourself to, to early cancellation penalties, yeah. which can be substantial. The baseline is 90 days worth of interest. So, 
you know, in the early days of a bond and, and there's something for the, for those property nerds like me, <laughs> there's a tool, um, called an amortization, uh, calculator. You can find it on our website and that's going to tell you exactly what proportion of your repayment is allocated to interest. And in the first couple of years, um, the, the majority of your repayment, say it's 10 grand a month, is actually allocated towards interest. So if you kind of in, in year two, um, you know, that, that, that could amount to like 27 Ks worth of penalties if you haven't given that 90 days written notice. Very wow. important. Okay. And then just building on that. So now let's say you're ready to list your property. All right. But now you're not sure how long it's going to take you. I mean, generally speaking with, in my experience, it takes about three to six months to sell a property if it's priced correctly for the current market. But. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it just, it changes things sometimes when you holding your cards a little bit closer. Does it, does it make a difference if you give that 90 day notice and then only sell your house in nine months? So you certainly would have to then, Jordan, keep an eye on those dates and get that, um, get that notice extended. Okay. So kind of on day 25. Yes. So uh, would it, know, would it potentially be an, a viable option to give in notice upon receiving your first offer or, I mean, like I say, generally it takes about two, three months to transfer a bond anyways. So mm-hmm. in a, in a case like that, would that be applicable or is it too last minute? I would say do it earlier and extend the notice. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So then I suppose this is a lot of ground covered, but I wish we had more time, although there is one or two or three or four or a million things I'd love to carry on speaking about. Let's get on to one specifically that actually relates to, I'd say, majority of purchases looking for finance. What differences are involved in the process of a joint bond application as opposed to a individual bond application? Is the process yeah. the same or is it a, is there multiple credit? What, what's the process there? I mean, I think what's what's quite groundbreaking and quite forward-thinking about South Africa is that anyone can buy with anyone. Yeah. So you and I can buy a place together, myself and my brother, mm-hmm. myself and my mom. The bank doesn't uh, doesn't really um, mind about the structure of the co-purchaser, oh, wow. how they're related, oh, wow. so how they can. You don't have to can... be a spouse or a relative. Correct, wow. correct. That's so, right. so a joint bond application, obviously, first of all, the offer to purchase is going to have to be in two names. Mm-hmm. So, whoever the parties are need to reflect on the offer to purchase because that is going to be how the deeds office is going to register that okay. title deed. Okay. So, if it does come to a spouse, we, I mean, I think a certain things with a joint application we have to flag. A, if they are married, how are they married? Yes. You know, if I'm buying with a friend and that friend is married in community of property, all of a sudden, the two of us become three of us. Yeah. No, exactly. And I mean, what about a circumstance where you buy with a friend? Again, extreme argument. For extreme example, you have a fallout. And Mm. uh, is there there a case whereby there is an ownership stake in the property based on the joint bond? Or how would it go if, if there was no contract or nuptials or anything in place whereby there was a provision for what would happen if both parties decided that they want to break ties but neither wanted to part ways with the property would the consensus then be that they were 50 50 owners or how would that 
you know, it's that old, it's that old adage, mates and money don't mix. Eh? Yeah. So, so things do happen. Things do happen. And, you know, in, in, you can always have a legal contract drawn up by a conveyancer. They probably won't charge you if they're handling the transfer. But I will tell you that the title deed will overarch any type of legal agreement. And when it comes to a bond, even if I earn double, you earn, the bank is going to hold you both equally jointly and severably liable. So you're going to have to come to an understanding as to, A, do you want to sell that property if you both want out and proceeds are split 50-50, or you're going to have to agree for one party to buy the other party out. That becomes a little bit more of a complex transaction. It's called the substitution of debtors. Hmm. But the purchaser buying the other party out is going to then have to qualify for that full exposure by themselves. It becomes an affordability question again. It's interesting. Okay. And then as another, just uh, pulling a rabbit out the hat, what if one side of the partner in the bond or the, the second name in the bond is unable to, you know, pay their share? Would that then fall onto their, their co-applicant or their co-bond holder? Wow. So that's the risk. You're both yes. jointly and severably liable. So, yes. Jordan, if it's you and I, I stop paying. I can't pay. I run away. It's yeah. all on you. She's remind it's me to never so buy a house with you. Okay, so. And it happens, eh? Hey? Happens. Yeah, so, all no, of that needs to be factored in. For sure, for sure. It is all very important and nothing really can be missed if you're looking at, you know, really tightening the ship and, you know, controlling and managing your property interests and investments efficiently and effectively. Let's, uh, let's take a little breather and, uh, Natasha will get back to our conversation straight after this. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Natasha Champion with me here for the second edition of Propertunity Knocks. I'm your host, Jordan Chernotsky, and we've been having a rather interesting conversation uh, for the last uh, good few minutes. Natasha Champion from Uber Home Loans, the regional sales manager. Natasha, as I asked you earlier, I hope you've really enjoyed yourself with us. It's been a pleasure having you. And uh, before we let you go, there are... A little, last little bunch of topics that I just want to get your insight on. So whenever you're ready, you let me know, and then I'm going to bombard you with questions like I've been doing for the last 45 minutes. Bring it, Jordan. I'm not scared. (laughs) Okay. So I've seen this with a lot of my clients, and I definitely have heard from you in terms of your, your backing in terms of doing this and your promotion of doing this. Tell us about multi-bank submissions when applying for a bond. Why is it better to go to multiple banks as opposed to just your bank? So so it always amazes me how, you know, especially now with the emergence of Black Friday as the zeitgeist of, of how people are operating. People are going to do their research when they buy a new flat screen TV. Yeah. Is it on special at game? Is it on special at high sense? We're talking maybe 20 grand's worth of income uh, investments, but but when people are actually embarking upon a 20 year home loan, they, they go, um, in w- with blind faith that their own bank is going to look after them. Yeah. So 
shop around. This is one of the biggest investments you'll ever make. It's a 20-year financial commitment. And this is my favorite stats. I'm considering at this point getting it tattooed. <laughs> 46% of applications that are declined by one lender are approved by another. Wow. That is incredible. That is an I mean, interesting that's just mind-blowing. No, that really is. I wouldn't have even thought that. That's amazing. And I'm sure of so that, think- I'm sure of those quite a few get rejected by their own bank too. Well, correct, because the instinct is to go directly to your own bank and, and people will say, but then why doesn't my bank love, love me anymore? Yeah. Or, you know, they I've take all my money every client. month. Yeah, I paid exactly. all my, all my fees on time. <laughs> and it remains, uh, it reminds me of the sage, sage words of my own father. If you want loyalty, Natasha, get yourself a dog. Yeah, exactly. So you do in fact become, not to say just a number. Some people have very sharp private bankers. But sometimes your own bank knows you too well. Yeah. So when we apply for, for, for a bond, you know, three months, uh, three months bank statements, whereas your own bank might have access to the student loan 20 years ago that mm-hmm. you defaulted on. Yeah. And I think an internal record at the bank, even though the banks do talk to each other like the insurance companies do, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're a little bit more open to, to bringing you over as a client. And the banks are extremely competitive. Yeah. So not only would a competing bank potentially offer you a better deal, in most cases they do, but they'd also give you an extra sweetener on that interest rate to move your primary banking across. Yeah. Either way, what a multi-submission is going to do is give you the power of choice. You'll yeah. have options. Yeah. The red bank's given me the loan amount I need, but the blue bank's given me a better interest yes. rate. That's when you've got someone like us in your corner to go back and forth, negotiate the best deal and get you to the best of both worlds. Yeah. We don't have any other agenda. We're 100% impartial, not yet to take you away from your bank, but we can certainly, Jordan, make your bank work a bit harder for your yeah, business. Yeah, exactly. Those competing quotes. I'm sure. Look, tell me one thing in that, on just building on that. Have you seen a reasonable level of success with clients going to their bank getting an XYZ rate, then going to another bank, getting a better rate, and then going back to their bank and saying, how can this bank give me a better rate than you can? And I've been with you for 10 years. Does that work? Does that bear fruit? Listen, I mean, I think I think we've got to draw the line at, at blatant horse trading and, and take an overview of, okay, is this a service issue? You know, if a bank's taking two weeks to, to come back to you with an approval and a competing bank has done it in three days at a mm. better rate, you know, it becomes an issue of principle maybe. Yeah. Do I want to embark upon a 20-year relationship with, yeah. with a bank that's just been actually been quite shoddy? So, you know, there's a lot to take into account. Yeah. People assume that the overriding factor is the interest rates, and of course it's huge. Yeah. There are a lot of things to take into account. Service, the loan term, yeah. the other T's and C's involved. And I think if you align yourself with someone that's a specialist in the industry, they can help you highlight what to look for, and take a holistic overview of the offers you've received. Yeah. Look, I suppose from the bank's perspective, loyalty to them is whether you can afford what they offer. And from your perspective, their loyalty would be, you know, giving you some form of faith in a similar light to the faith you gave them by joining them as a client. But um, I suppose in terms of multi-submission, it's also advisable to find yourself a couple of options in terms of the home you're looking for, given the oversupply of property on the market at the moment. It's like with anything. I remember my, uh, you know, I've been told many times by entrepreneurs, by senior executives that it's important to get more than 
two or three quotes for whatever it is you're looking for, unless it's a cold drink at the shop, you know. But if you're going to go buy yourself a car, you're going to get three quotes. You're going to get three options. You're going to weigh up the pros. You're going to weigh up the cons. So how can that mindset be brought into the hunt for a property? Mm. Exactly that. So, I mean, I think if, if we, if we're in the home loan market, we've done our affordability, we've understood our credit worthiness, we, we're discerning enough to, to understand that we need more than one quote on the home loan itself. And I think when it comes to shopping for that property, you need to apply the same rationale. Yeah. These are my non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. I need three bedrooms. These are things that I can kind of be more flexible on. And I think understand what else is happening in the market. And I think that's why it's important to align yourself with a reputable real estate agent that understands sure. your area. Yeah. You know, align yourself with an area specialist and say, listen, this, this property has been on the market for X amount of time, but there's value in it because it's yeah. near the school. No, exactly. And and yeah. I mean, speaking as with as someone with age and experience myself, I mean, seldom ever do do these people, you know, find something that ticks, ticks all the boxes. You know, chances are you might find something that ticks eight out of ten, but then you'll find something Correct. else you that ticks to. nine out of ten, and then something else that ticks seven out of ten. But of those seven, there's three things that the nine out of ten didn't tick. So it Correct. ends up being a, a ratings game in in a sense, you know. You need something that works exactly for you. That. But, You've got to weight your your non-negotiables yeah. and make an informed decision based on on yes. what's most important. No, exactly. And of course, these factors come in almost completely separately from the financial aspect. You know, whether you can afford it or not is one thing, but whether it suits your needs is another. Absolutely. You know, we always say property is an extremely emotional transaction for both buyer and seller by its very nature. But finance is actually quite black and white. So the sooner we can align those two processes, the better. The earlier on in the buying cycle, we can can start having those conversations so we're aligned, the better. Yeah. No, exactly. At the end of the day, if if you've got enough finance behind you and something is proven to be worthwhile, then you should be more comfortable to go for it, you know? There's the financial logical mindset that comes in, and then there's the more emotional sort of feeling aspect around it. And they're both of equal importance in my eyes, at least. Sure. But interesting, interesting. I suppose the last closing statement or closing question, I suppose, is this. For a small niche of that are either looking at purchasing a second property or have already purchased multiple properties, is it possible to use your existing mortgage? For example, you've taken a five million bond on your house and you've now paid up three and a half of it. I'm obviously excluding interest there. Are you allowed, if if you're in good credit standing, to use that bond to purchase a new property? So every single application we submit, we automatically apply for an access bond. Okay. Some of them will grant it at approval stage. Some of them will grant it after the bond has been registered. So so that generally is a facility that is open. There are two factors when it comes to, to gearing an existing bond to pay for another property. Number one, are you changing the original terms? So if we took a bond out 15 years ago, uh, we took it out for a million rand, Jordan, mm-hmm. and now we want to increase it. The property is now worth two million. We want to increase it to 1.5 million. As soon as we are changing the initial terms of that bond, we are subject to a potential repricing. In terms of the so interest the rate. So the interest is going to be, 
Yeah. Okay. The, inst- the instinct's going to be, oh, but I've got prime less two on this. Let me gear this back up. Remember mm-hmm. that if you change it, that if you're increasing the original loan amount, you could be subject to repricing. It might still make sense. Yeah. Depending yeah. on your strategy. And if you're an investor and you want to, you want to leverage the rental income, yeah. it might make more sense to bond the property that no, you're exactly. buying. And look, I mean, chances are, look, irrespective of whether your initial interest rate on the first property was higher or lower, chances are even if your interest rate has changed, it's still going to be in line with the current market interest rate. Is that the right? thinking it'll either be sort of around there could it be higher could it be you know it depends on the deal structure maybe you've identified an investment opportunity for a million and you've got 500k to throw at it that becomes a very attractive low risk deal which could attract an interest rate even better than the one you've currently got on your primary residence where you get it to the max no exactly so and I'm mm. sure your performance on the first bond plays a big, big role as well. If you're on time, if you're, you know, maybe you took a shorter term, you've paid all your balances, you've paid a bit extra sometimes, you've just proven to be a very solid client. I suppose all these mm. things mm. sort of support your case. Mm. I think that's why, you know, it's important to align yourself with a professional and, 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 and be heard. Tell your yeah. story. What are you trying to achieve and how can we help you best and most economically achieve it. Exactly. I suppose that's because all the, scenarios, especially in property, are quite complex. Yeah. And as is as is a mortgage loan by its definition. No, for sure, for sure. There's a, a hell of a lot of complexities that people don't even know exist. I suppose until speaking to an expert or a professional or someone with some experience. But, and someone um, that's impartial, yeah. you know, someone that that's got various relationships, yeah. and and our client is you. Yeah. You know, your exactly. banker works for the bank. No, exactly. That's the truth. And I mean, the, the, the administrative procedures that go behind going through your bank directly as opposed to an intermediary, you know, it's just a no brainer at this stage of the game. From your lips, Jordan. Yeah. And lo- my last question, and I'll, it's a one word answer or one line answer. Tell everyone how long it takes to get a pre-approval done. By Uber or by another intermediary. Eight hours, you say? Eight hours for a salaried applicant. Uh Payslip. I can get a certificate out once I get all your supporting documents within eight hours. As opposed to doing the back and forth, the the tango with the banks, I suppose they call it. Listen, this is a pre-approval. Once there's an offer to purchase in place and it's a formal approval, first answer within, yeah, first answer within three days Mm -hmm. and 95% 95% of most lenders are issuing final grants within six working days. Jeez, that's amazing. It's an amazing gap in the market that I suppose intermediaries like yourselves have have filled. But, Natasha, as much as it pains me to say this, we have very little time left to carry on this very interesting conversation as much as I'd like to carry it on. Natasha, thank you so so much for making yourself available on a very sensitive Sunday morning for most of us um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show Natasha just every time I speak to you about property it's it's an absolute treat I feel like I'm learning I feel like I'm more confident about my own service that I can provide and it's just honestly such a treat Natasha so thank you so so much for joining us today really I cannot wait to have you on the show again if you'll come back hopefully um <laughs> But Natasha, thank you again. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. All I can say is thank you because it's it's thank tough. you, George. It's, thank you, listeners. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Nat. Have an amazing Sunday, 
And uh, this has been Jordan Chinatsky for Propportunity Knox. And we'll see you again next Sunday, same time.